Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Hannah speaks with Southern Cross Austereo's Brian Gallagher about... The future of ACM newspapers. I really do think that having fresh eyes on that portfolio um, leads to nowhere but up. His thoughts on radio ratings. I'm probably the last person in the business who actually goes through them with a fine tooth comb. And offering a $1 million Boomtown prize. We're kind of putting our money where our mouth is. But first, the week's topics. Instagram gets rid of likes. The return of Cole's Little Shop. More marketer changes at KO, MCN and Foxtel. And what's rating in TV? First up, Instagram is trialling removing the likes from images for Australian users. It's the second phase in a trial which began in Canada in May and will expand across other countries later in the month. Brittany, surely getting it for the gram is all about the likes. What's the motivation and explanation behind this change? Instagram is saying that it's a way to make it less of a competition. Um, I think most of us are probably only on Instagram because it's a competition and we're comparing ourselves to others and that's not a great thing. So they recognise that um, and it does come after some criticism about online bullying and how platforms like Instagram aren't doing enough to combat it. They introduced a couple of new products recently in that space. So that's the motivation, basically. Instagram shouldn't be a competition. It should be about the content, not the likes. And we're going to remove likes and see if that works. So just for people who might not be familiar with it, if my photo gets likes, can I still see that? How how does it work in terms of people being able to see their own information and see their own data on their photos. Mm. So if I saw your post in my feed, it would say that Zoe and Hannah and others had liked your post and I could click on others and see a list of who had liked your post. If you clicked on the others who have liked your post, you'll have a number up the top that I won't see. So you can still see how many people have liked your post. It's just that others can't. Now, a lot of people these days are on Instagram purely for the likes and mm. they're trying to build a really big following and often if a photo has a lot of likes already and I don't know the psychology behind this, I feel like a lot of people are more inclined to then like it as well because mm. if you can see that 6,549 others have already liked it, you're not going to think, oh, it really means something if I like this, it doesn't matter. Whereas I know a lot of people who come across a photo and they'll want to like it, you know, whether it's someone they have a crush on or somebody that they used to know, and then they won't like it because they'll realize, oh my God, I'm going to be the first person to like this, or it's really obvious. So do you think it's going to change people's behavior on the platform? Yeah. So, I mean, we were chatting about this a bit earlier today and I was saying that I've noticed myself doing that and friends doing that where I'll give likes to some things, uh, not give likes to others. There are lots of people who comment like first like or um, <laughs> things like that. So it will be interesting to see if it changes how many likes something gets. 
and particularly for influencers who are building businesses literally driven by likes and engagement, uh, the removal of likes won't impact the measurement tools that them and brands are using, but it will be interesting to see if those measurement tools report different levels of engagement because there's no likes shown on photos. Well, and is that not a whole part of uh, the influencer model is being able to display how popular you are? Mm, mm. And if you're not able to do that, how are you kind of like, I understand they can still deliver reports to brands on sponsored posts and stuff like that. But surely the whole idea behind a brand getting a sponsored post from an influencer is because then it's got, you know, 15,000 likes or whatever, and it's, you know, generating conversation around that and oh wow look how popular that brand is and surely it's going to kind of remove that aspect or at least make it harder yeah and I think as well like it's interesting to see which posts get lots of likes which don't um I know in terms of you know online media and social media drama I love looking at people who are like quote unquote cancelled and seeing if their follower and like count goes down so it will be interesting to see how people interact with influencers' posts knowing that there's not a number attached. They have also said, well, I mean, this is still just a trial. Um, As Viv said earlier, it started in Canada in May and it's being thought to roll out across other countries across the later half of this month. So could this be just a bit of a ploy from Instagram being like, oh, we're going to remove likes and, you know, it'll make everyone in a safer space and et cetera, et cetera, and then it may not end up happening? Well, so much of Instagram's activity is moving into the stories anyway, Mm. which Mm. is that function where the content is only available for 24 hours and unless you actively choose to do so, it doesn't then stay on your Instagram page. And this removal of likes and change in how we're interacting with content on Instagram doesn't actually affect stories. And I think that one of the unhealthiest things for me to do is to watch back my own Instagram stories and watch the number of people that drop off from like part one to part five. I'm not one of those super obnoxious people that has like 35 (laughs) little dots, but say I have around five. When I'm watching my Instagram story back now, I actually – put my hand or my finger over the number at the bottom. Wow. And I don't look at it. I'll look at only the last one because then I see the people who've made it to Mm. the end. I'm not aware of who dropped off and I'm not aware Mm. of how many people I lost along the way. And I actually implemented that uh, a while ago when I had a crush on somebody and it would just destroy me if I saw that like he dropped off in in story three, Mm. get so offended and want to know why. Whereas, you know, if I made it to the end and he was there, then it's like, hooray, he made it to the end. And if he wasn't, I didn't even know if he'd Mm. started on that ridiculous journey with me. So in that way, I think not monitoring my story as closely has actually been healthy and it's made me post stuff more that I want to rather than like, Mm. okay, what's going to hold people's attention? What's going to make sure that nobody drops off? So in theory, it could make things healthier, but ultimately Instagram's a business. And if it does make people completely turn away from the platform or start posting things that people don't like and don't engage with, they're only going to do something that's sustainable for their business. You know, they are owned by Facebook. Let's Mm. not pretend they're hashtag good guys here. Mm. Yeah. And we also, I mean, IGTV is another obvious big push for them. And that's one that um, they're working a lot with influencers and with brands on. And presumably these changes aren't going to affect that either and the way that that's monitored. So 
yeah, maybe making changes in a kind of a part of the business, which is more and more becoming obsolete is just a bit of a token gesture. And we also saw Twitter roll out some changes over the past week. Hannah, were they as monumental as ditching the likes? <laughs> well, they, I mean, they were monumental in terms of the platform. It was a complete redesign. They did build it from the ground up and they've been testing it um, across users since the beginning of the year. They were testing two different versions and they've obviously picked the one they're going to go with. It wasn't really that groundbreaking just in the way that basically what they've done is create a bigger version of what the interface you use on the app, which I think was the idea behind it was that people who are using the desktop are probably also using the app and to kind of make it a bit seamless across them all. A couple of things, they've kind of really simplified everything, just shoved it into two uh, sidebars. So your profiles and your bookmarks and whatever on one side and the other side is allowing you now to access trending content um, in the same way you can on the app. Users aren't able to go back to the old interface. So Twitter have leaned into this one 100%. And it's also worth noting that um, for Mac users, there will be a Twitter app returning to uh, Mac desktops in the next couple of months. So really, this change is only going to affect PC users. And Twitter itself said in the post that PC users are usually rare Twitter users or new Twitter users. So I don't know that this is one that the diehards are really going to be bothered with. And is this Twitter trying to regain some relevance? I feel like there's been a lot of coverage about how Twitter's heyday is well behind it. So is this a meaningful change or or are they just trying to hold on to what they have left in this sort of ever-evolving social media game? In my personal opinion, I think that Twitter and Instagram are both doing a similar thing here where they're making a lot of noise about a positive change. You know, oh, we've redesigned the website for you guys to use to make it easier and to make it better and what they're kind of doing is waving that in front of your face while alongside it they're have they're having all this back and forth with the fact that they can't control trolls and they can't control the fake the spread of fake news and you know all the backlash that has been hitting them recently about the lack of monitoring on their platform so i think personally and this might just be me being cynical the fact that yes it's a brand new desktop design but was anybody actually asking for a brand new <laughs> desktop design or did they just want to win and in other social media news, Facebook has finally had to face the music for the Cambridge Analytica scandal. This is the major political scandal which revealed that Cambridge Analytica had harvested the data of millions of Facebook users without consent for political advertising. Brittany, what was the result for Facebook here? So they were fined $5 billion, uh, but critics have said that while that's a huge amount of money, maybe it doesn't actually equate them facing the music. It's just a fraction of their 2018 revenue, which was almost $56 billion. So $5 billion is uh, at the upper limit of what they were anticipating for this fine. I think they'd put aside uh, $3 billion to cover it. So they were anticipating it. Uh, they were expecting something in the vicinity of 3 to $5 billion, and it's ended on the on the upper scale of that. And is there any news on whether Facebook's going to try and appeal this or they're just going to let this one through to the keeper? Have they actually said anything about it? Haven't said anything about it, haven't provided a comment. So whether or not uh, they do or don't is unclear at this point. And it's also just important to note that those amounts that Brittany was talking about are in US dollars. Yep. So it's even even bigger than it might seem. And normally I wouldn't read directly from 
the Mumbrella cast script that I have in front of me, but I do feel like it's worth mentioning this one when I'm being directed to what talking points we should have. I'm not always meant to read it verbatim, but this one, all in capitals, says, when will Facebook finally be hurt by privacy scandals, OMG? Well, their share price went up. In response to them being fined $5 billion US dollars for this thing that's had huge political ramifications, huge data ramifications, huge privacy ramifications, their share price went up on the same day. So this, are they facing the music? Mm, not really. No, and they're not. And I I wrote that script <laughs> and I stand by it. Um, I, this is what frustrates me about Facebook and I feel like it's been going on for years at this point. I mean, after the, you know, the live video scandal and everything that happened around that and they're like, oh, we're going to look into it and we're going to fix it up. But everything feels like a token gesture and when they don't want to talk about it they just don't talk about it which Mm. has happened many times in the past mark zuckerberg has come out and said some really questionable things as has sheryl sandberg and yet nothing they're too big it feels to me like they're too big for anything to actually touch them Mm. so you do wonder at what point is some i mean this was one of the biggest scandals we've had in the political space in the last quite a few years and yet they're being charged an amount that isn't even close to the revenue they made last mm. year. Like, I just and they, don't... And they knew about it and they're like, yeah, that's fine. We'll put away money for it. Yeah. We'll cop the hit. And it makes me feel like in terms of Twitter and Instagram making changes with likes and the redesign, that it's almost a, an attempt to shift attention away from the issues that are across all three of these platforms, the super serious mental health issues... Mm-hmm bullying, trolling, terribly, you know, offensive stuff set across all three platforms that, okay, well, if we introduce a thing that kind of sounds good and kind of looks good, then maybe that will make us look kind of good for a week or two. It feels like every time they try to push like, you know, when you see headlines that are like, Facebook supports small publishers with Mm. new grant. And you're like, it's Facebook's fault or it's very large tech company's fault that small publishers are suffering. Mm. So I feel like they're just really good at kind of misdirecting the attention where they want it to go. And that makes it feel like to me, nothing's ever going to happen. Well, I guess we'll have to wait another day to find out when Facebook will finally be hurt by privacy scandals. (laughs) OMG. (laughs) But up next, Cole's Little Shop is back. The Coles Little Shop initiative has returned and in case you don't remember, that's the tiny plastic collectible craze that hit last year and generated both a lot of press for Coles but also a lot of negative attention around the use of plastic, particularly at a time when really large retailers were starting to phase out single-use plastic bags or charge people for plastic bags and all of the backlash that was involved in that, pretending that it was motivated by environmental concerns, I guess you could say. Uh, People questioned that when they were then encouraging people to so maniacally go after single-use plastic toys. It is a really strange concept, but it's one that worked so, so well. You know, even adults were getting in Mm. on it. It wasn't just crazy children at the register Mm. pestering their exhausted parents who just had to give in. Quite often there were people without children or 
parents themselves who cared more than their own children. And my mum is like big into the Facebook buy swap sell scene. Oh. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and in her region, she lives up the coast in New South Wales, and in her region, there were massive swap meets for yeah. these things, and people were paying up to five hundred dollars yeah. for single figurines to complete their collection. Like it. I don't know that anybody could have predicted how insane it would go. Yeah, and like it worked to a crazy extent yeah. because it it almost it almost signaled to me what uh, monopoly at McDonald's was at the mm. beginning, where you're like, oh man, I just need this last one. I don't really need to do a shop right now. Just like you didn't really need to go to Macca's, but you'll do it just in the hope of collecting the final one that you really need that otherwise you'll buy in a Facebook buy swap sell group for hundreds of dollars. <laughs> and look, it did have real world results beyond mm. just people trying to get these bits of plastic. There's a report in The Australian that says that analysts believe that the Maiden Little Shop campaign added around 100 basis points of sales growth to Cole's first quarter sales performance in 2018. And that was more than double Woolworths' rate of growth for the same period. So in that constant supermarket war, it really was a key point of difference. But Coles now has a new chief marketing officer in the form of Tourism Australia's former CMO, Lisa Ronson. And I saw on LinkedIn that she was copying quite a bit of flack about bringing this back for a second time, particularly as there is just so much attention at the moment on the climate crisis, on plastics in the ocean, on humans ingesting tiny pieces of microplastics and just sort of saying, you know, you have to look beyond the immediate financial reward of this. What do you guys think? Do you think that this sort of action can be justified in terms of its business results because we've got two things here. It definitely, definitely works as a marketing and revenue generating play. But on the flip side, these tiny bits of plastic really aren't adding to humanity in any great way. No, they are not. Um, I, I kind of am split down the middle on this one, unfortunately, because I, while I personally think it's truly horrific that we are bringing this thing back again just to generate a whole bunch of meaningless pieces of plastic that will inevitably get chucked out somewhere down the line. Um, I mean, I think Coles, as you just just said, I think Coles would be mad not to do it. And I think probably a lot of the backlash that Lisa is facing is going to be from the industry, especially on LinkedIn, obviously. But And a lot of the backlash that Coles is getting in the media, I would imagine this is going to be a case where that's not going to reflect their bottom line. We're going to see a lot of people making a lot of very loud noise on social media, but it's going to be the mums and the kids who aren't on social media, but who are out there going to Coles, getting nagged to go to Coles, going to Facebook's buy swap sell to pick up these pieces that are actually pushing that bottom line. So, I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, I do think Coles would have been silly to not try it again. Mm. That growth that you mentioned, Viv, last year was record setting for Coles, I read in The Guardian. And that same report said that there was a huge amount of hype, which we know there was, that's what we've been talking about. There was a huge demand. There were these tiny little things going on eBay for hundreds of dollars. But then all of a sudden, the hype died down people stopped caring. The prices on eBay dropped dramatically. 
and people ended up throwing out these things that they had coveted. And then we saw them in waterways and washed up on beaches. So Coles knows that they're putting all this plastic out. They say it's recycled plastic. That was one of the the things that I read on LinkedIn. Um, but as you said, it's it's not climate change anymore. It's an emergency. We know that it's a crisis. I feel increasingly depressed that we're essentially just a day closer every day to like doom. <laughs> <laughs> the planet is dying. And nice uplifting <laughs> today. <laughs> And if we're going to, yeah, Facebook sucks, Instagram sucks, <laughs> Coles sucks too. And the world um, is ending. <laughs> like if Coles and Woolworths are going to get rid of plastic bags and that was a great PR move for them once they got past the crazy back and forth, are we, aren't we, or people are upset, oh, let's leave them in a bit longer, whatever, you can't do that and expect it to be taken authentically if a few months later you back it up with, wow, this did really great for us, let's put in this campaign again. I I saw a Batuta uh, article that was like, you know, they're not even single-use, they're (laughs) zero-use plastics. Um, Yeah, I can't justify it. But then again, I'm not the CMO at Coles, Lisa. I'm not on the board of Coles. And I can imagine that if I were in their position, it's as Hannah said, pretty hard to deny that it works and gets results. But I just, I can't justify it as a, as a person living in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Britt, you raised a really good point earlier when we were talking about this though. Lisa has come into this as the new CMO. She's come in after the last campaign. Would it have worked one way or the other if she had chosen not to do it? Everyone would have been like, why wouldn't you do Little Shop again? She's chosen to do it. And everyone's like, why are you murdering the planet? I feel like Mm. this was a lose-lose for her. And I also – I also wondered when we were chatting about that before how much of a say she Mm. had uh, if it was a campaign that was sort of decided upon before she started in the role did they have in mind that this is going to be, you know, a three, four, five-year campaign if it works? Um, I don't know how much say she had and maybe the flack she's copying is maybe kind of misdirected, but she's she's copying it and I think that to a large extent it's kind of warranted. So key takeaway here is the planet is dying. <laughs> so up next... More uplifting news with more staffing changes at KO, MCN and Foxtel in their marketing departments. Foxtel has lost two more marketers this week as its sports streaming service KO lost its CMO Carly Loder. Just days after Foxtel's Director of Content Marketing, Joe McAllister, also left the business. Together they make the string in a long line of marketers. Oh, I don't, sorry, I don't know what that's that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> they are the string. <laughs> They are a string. <laughs> this is what happens when I read a um, script without preparation. Yeah, that's um, horrible. <laughs> anyway, together they uh, join a long line of marketers who've left the business recently. So Carly had been with the business uh, for a while in terms of the larger Foxtel family. She'd come across from Fox Sports and then joined KO in February last year. 
it was quite an interesting statement from KO about this where they sort of said it's the right time for her to move on because, you know, it's been about a year and, and KO's launched and a few people have contacted me and indeed even in the comments said, actually, that's not the logical mm. time to leave. So I think people, and whether or not it's justified, people are looking at the list of people who've left the Foxtel marketing department and really getting a bit concerned about the turnover there. So last year, Foxtel's top marketer, Andy Lark, departed and he was replaced by REA Group's Kieran Cooney. In March this year, V8 Supercar's Chief Sales and Marketing Officer John Casey came on board, but he was gone by June. They've also had the departure of Group Head of Lifestyle Digital and Marketing, Bridget Slattery. Adam Ballesty, their Head of Sports Marketing, also left. And Andrew Mulready, the General Manager of Advertising Sales and Brand Partnerships, also left. So, Hannah, they have had appointments in, in the meantime and it's not just burn and churn, but you can understand why when people are looking at this list of departures and there's already so many people saying Foxtel's in trouble as a subscription television service. Do you think people are, are justified in, in drawing these conclusions about the state of its marketing function? I think you touched on it there. I think what's key to this is the fact that Foxtel itself um, is either in trouble or people think it's in trouble either way. And I think when you look at that with a whole lot of uh, staffing changes, you can't, it's very easy to draw a string between the two. I think if we look at other big media companies, if a bunch of people started leaving 10 now, people would draw the connection. Every time people leave Bauer, people are like, print media is dead. So I think when you are able to say a company's not performing well, P.S., they can't hold on to staff, it becomes incredibly easy to say there's something wrong. They did have some... Good news, though, in that Westpac's Toby Dewa has joined MCN, which is sort of Foxtel's sales house, which is increasingly being integrated back with Foxtel and News Corp now that it no longer also does the sales for Channel 10. So he's come on board in what I believe is a newly created role of customer engagement director. What does a customer engagement director do? <laughs> um, so basically he's going to be kind of, connecting the dots between brands and partners he's sitting between the sales and partnership team and reporting into mcn ceo mark frayne so what kind of stuck out to me about this appointment um is the language mcn have used in the announcement so uh, they've hit pretty hard on the fact that the appointment has come from a non-tv background and they've kind of used that to say look we're trying to innovate, we're trying to evolve, we're trying to do different things now, which I think uh, is so important for them as a business considering a lot of the conversation around them at the moment is how are they possibly going to survive in the new TV landscape. So I think the fact that they've gotten ahead of that and they're saying we're bringing in somebody from outside the business who's going to bring fresh eyes to it and show us the way forward is a pretty good PR push for them. Well, yeah, as I said, Toby's worked at Westpac. He's worked at Telstra and McDonald's. He's had stints at agencies as well, including Icon, UM and DDB. So he's definitely not, you know, just that rotating pool of people moving within the television networks. And MCN also recently brought in another outsider, for want of a better word, with uh, bringing in David Roddick, who was formerly with outdoor company Adshell, 
coming on as chief of sales. So they're clearly trying to diversify their staff lineup in terms of not just bringing on people with the same backgrounds, moving between the same jobs. And I guess that is really them trying to turn around the fortunes of MCN, both in terms of how it's actually performing, but also in terms of people's perceptions. Because as you say, once people start leaving and once people fixate on a narrative, it can become, it almost doesn't matter what they do, people are going to stick to that, well, television and Foxtel is dying narrative. And also your staff is any business's biggest investment. You spend so much money training staff, continuing to train them, developing them both professionally and personally. And as soon as someone leaves and you then have to commence a new hiring process, find someone new and then do all of that again, it's it's a huge loss of money in any business. So I think as Hannah touched on, it's not even just that it contributes to a narrative of, okay, well, they're not doing great. It also means that regardless of how they're doing, they're doing worse because they're having to spend so much time and resources into getting new people on board and getting them up to speed. Up next, half a million Aussies pull an all-nighter for the cricket and the tennis. So sport was again one of the biggest pulls for viewers in TV land this week with Wimbledon wrapping up on seven and the ICC Cricket World Cup on nine. Both the men's final at Wimbledon and the cricket final finished after 4am on Monday morning, which meant it took a while for the final figures to come out. But Oztam's Monday reporting had a collective 276,000 regional and metro viewers for the tennis and 199,000 for the cricket. Hannah, were you one of those 276,000 or 199,000? I was not, but I am very willing to dob our boss, Tim Burrows, in who turned up on Monday morning looking very bleary-eyed because <laughs> he had sat up for the cricket. Um, no, I was not one of those watching, but it was an interesting night, actually, because so uh, Wimbledon, Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic went for five sets, which took over five hours. It was the longest Wimbledon men's final ever, um, ending sometime somewhere after 4 a.m. Um, and I'm told the ICC cricket went to a tie-breaking super over between England and New Zealand. That also finished somewhere after 4 a.m. On top of that, there were more people watching on Foxtel, 54,000 on Fox Cricket um, for the cricket, obviously. And 95,000 watched Fox Sports Formula One, which also ended in the early morning, early hours of Monday morning. I just think it's really interesting. We have had some comments on the story um, of people pointing out that perhaps people had fallen asleep with the TV on, which (laughs) is a possibility. But I do think it's really interesting that so many people are this committed that they're willing to stay up till four o'clock in the morning to watch these games. It must bode well for Seven heading into the 2020 Olympics in that Australians love sport and we love watching sport and all of those cliches. But we also really like sleep. So <laughs> it's, it can be difficult as, for us here, you know, with the time zones and with the Olympics mm. and trying to stay up. And for those networks that have invested so much in those sporting rights, 
the fear must be, oh my God, people are just going to go to bed and read about it on the internet or, you know, do their version of catch-ups in some other way that doesn't involve getting no sleep and showing up to work really bleary-eyed. So I guess it is positive news for seven that perhaps, you know, if the game is right, it doesn't matter that the time is wrong. And there's so many people who do it. I'm not a soccer fan, but people, or football, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, Soccer. But people who are do get up at crazy hours to watch the games when they're being aired in Europe. Yeah, the one World of my Cup. yeah, one of my favorite days of the year is Boxing Day because the NBA has all of their Christmas Day games and I will get up at six AM and watch every game back to back. And it's not the same as then like waking up at nine and being like, Oh, who won? Let's mm. have a recap. And I saw some comments on the story that were like, yeah, people love sport, people love the thrill of it, and people like it more than the shitty reality TV that comes out. So, you know, it's working. And it's worth noting in there as well, the 2020 Olympics, obviously in Tokyo, which means the time difference won't be as bad as it has been Mm. in other years. And I think for seven, that's got to be a real win, because if you're looking at pushing people out of their you know, regular viewing hours, as long as you're not doing it by that much, or you can Mm. start during viewing hours and then push it past that or before that. Mm. I think that's kind of the key here. You know, these people weren't getting up at 4am to watch something. They were sitting up Mm. and just staying on it, especially in the case of both these games where it was really good games. They were, you know, action packed. People are willing to sit up for that. And that's the thing. They've started watching before they want to go to bed and then they're invested. You don't want to go to bed before the best bit happens and you don't want to get to work tomorrow and everyone else have done that and you not be part of it. I know that there were quite a few bleary-eyed people in the office, including Tim, as you said, but people love being a collective when it comes to sports. And I think Tim said as well the most exciting part of the cricket was the last, you know, half hour or hour. Mm. And he was like, if I'd known that in advance, I would have set an alarm for it, but you don't. And that's Mm. kind of the magic of sport is it's not like a movie where you can be like, oh, I only like the last half hour. You know, you've got to just sit there. Yeah, it's not, you know, the Bachelor finale where you're tuning for for the final decision also in tv seven decided to pull the pin perhaps on the reboot of temptation island now firstly something that we've all learned about hannah today is that sometimes when she's alone (laughs) instead of singing songs she will meow them so before we kick off this segment hannah can you meow the theme song for temptation island for us Cannot. It hasn't, oh been, God, it hasn't been on the S for 15 years. What do you think 14-year-old Hannah was sitting up at night watching Temptation Island? Like, got to get my reality TV show fixed. I love that not only are we outing Hannah as a closet meower, but we're also putting her on the spot to do it. I just feel like this, I honestly... Bring me anyone who can sing the theme song to Temptation Island. <laughs> Look, Let I'm, alone in meows. I'm just following my notes where I've written asterisks, I meow these songs, which is a quote <laughs> from you before recording. Um, but look, if you're not going to do that for us, which is, of course, wildly disappointing, um, why don't you you clarify um, what is going on with Temptation Island? Because as you say, it's been off the air for 15 years. Seven made a lot of noise about bringing it back when Married at First Sight was doing really well on its rival nine. So people sort of thought, oh, okay, so now we've got this other trashy, crazy, dramatic dating show and it's now on hold maybe? 
They really leaned into that when they were announcing it off the back of maps. They uh, called it a sizzling social experiment. Uh, Seven's head of programming, Angus Ross, called it the ultimate test of faithfulness, which is a ringing endorsement. (laughs) But I think probably what's happened here is the super switch definitely did not hit as they had hoped it would. Um, It was obviously the remake of uh, the seven year switch and they brought it back. And it premiered to just 308,000 Metro viewers. Um, after just two nights on air, they dropped it to one night a week. Shortly after that, they've already pushed it to seven flicks where they're airing it two episodes on a Wednesday night just to seemingly get it off the books. And I think perhaps realizing that maybe you can't just throw a bunch of people into a house and be like, sexy, trashy, <laughs> way. Um, and that unless way, it's Love Island. Unless it's Love Island. <laughs> I think I think that kind of that's the point though, like, Nine with Love Island had a surprise hit on their hands. Married at First Sight pulled numbers that nobody could have predicted. But I think all that's kind of shown is you can't just be like, here's a trashy show and throw it out into the world Mm. and people aren't just going to jump. You still need something there. Mm. It's a bit like the true crime thing, I guess, isn't Mm. it? That podcasts and books and TV shows and Netflix specials were all suddenly true crime. And that worked for a little bit and then people were like, yeah, but it still has to be a good story. Yeah. And so, well, so the official line from Seven is that they've hit pause on Temptation Island. Uh, The story actually broke on TV Black Box, who reported having seen an email to the cast and crew which said that uh, production would not be going ahead. So TV Black Box is saying it's been cancelled. The line I got from Seven was that it's been postponed, but either way, it's definitely not coming anytime soon. It does feel to me like Seven does need a bit of a programming rethink or overhaul. So, look, there's no denying that they still do really well. Quite often, Seven News will top the Mm. TV ratings all up. It'll just be top of the ladder in the metro markets and regionally. Home and Away is this really bizarre, continuous, (laughs) stellar performer for them at 7 o'clock on weeknights. And the Chase Australia, their game show, Mm. does incredibly well as well considering its earlier time slot and whatnot so look it still does okay in its primary channel audience share it's got a number of multi-channels that quite often do quite well and really boost the network even if nine's primary channel has had a win then the seven network will sort of creep up thanks to the performance of seven two and seven mate in terms of their other entertainment offerings though beyond home and away and the chase australia I do feel like they sort of had a bit of a failure to launch recently. We were meant to have an additional My Kitchen Rules series, which seems to have disappeared off the books. Temptation Island's disappeared. The Super Switch isn't going well. They're not being able to beat nine in much more than news and those stable programmings. Obviously, sport's still doing well for them, but they do feel a bit, stale with their entertainment at the moment yeah house rules quite often when up against master chef um falls under it it's had a couple of good nights but generally it falls under and it definitely doesn't hit into those key demographic key advertising demographics like master chef often does obviously nine's been having phenomenal success with married at first sight followed by like masters followed by the voice followed by ninja warrior which is doing really well now too you mentioned mkr in there um Seven did confirm to TV Black Box that the show that was meant to run at the end of this year, which I believe was the best of or that kind of idea, favorite contestants, has been canned. 
um, and MKR will not return until 2020. So maybe they are in that place. Maybe they have kind of realized, oh, shit, we can't just, you know, revamp a bunch of stuff slash run second seasons of a bunch of stuff and it won't, you know, bring in the ratings. So maybe we are about to see some new announcements from them, which would be pretty great. Up next, Hannah sits down with Southern Cross Oz Stereo's Brian Gallagher. I'm Mumbrella's Hannah Blackiston, and I'm sitting here with Southern Cross Austereo Chief Sales Officer Brian Gallagher. Thank you for joining me today. It's my great pleasure. <laughs> so we're going to kick off with Boomtown, which was obviously an initiative you've been a big part of. Why did you feel it was so important for right now? I think that there are a lot of arguments in the media space being reframed at the moment, Um in fact, I'm quite excited about the reframing of the role of some of the digital platforms in the broader media mix. And uh, and I just felt like it was time, um, as do all of the participants within Boomtown, feel like it's time to get markets back on the agenda as opposed to platforms. So over the last 10 years, the hot ticket is, you know, which new platform am I going on? You know, I'm going on Snap. <laughs> That's my thing. The advertiser's got to be on Snap. But, you know... We felt very strongly that there were a whole bunch of underserved markets that were outside of metropolitan locations where consumers were ripe to, you know, uh, consume particular brands, but they just weren't seeing the message. So I thought, you know, now that the argument is moving around to what is effective advertising uh, and what, what role various platforms have been taking is kind of under a microscope, it was a great time to sort of relaunch regional markets as a major opportunity for brands. So you mentioned in there that the um, narrative is changing to around what is effective. Why is that change happening? Well, you know, to an extent, I think we've got, you know, Mark Pritchard's of the world, um, Keith Weed, you know, obviously his his seminal discussion a couple of years ago about um, the murky media supply chain, um, which not only dealt with uh, some of the vagaries of digital measurement uh, and accountability, but also the way in which digital was being bought in the supply chain. Um, you know, we couldn't escape the focus on ROI in, ironically, the ROI mediums. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I think clients have had a really close look at the performance of all the elements of their budget. Their, their media budgets, um, and decided that, you know, the tactics of the last 10 years of really going in with price-based direct response, you know, cl click here for success type of <laughs> campaigns, um, just haven't been moving the needle. Um, and, you know, Field and Burnett talk quite clearly about the impact on overall brand uh, value that ha that's degraded over the course of the last sort of 10 years or so. And um, I think people are just sitting up and taking notice of that. It makes mm -hmm. sense that um, that we have a funnel we need to fill with our messaging. We need to, you know, create overall awareness and consideration um, and not one single platform can handle the heavy lifting there. Mm -hmm. And I think we put far too much emphasis um, for varying reasons, but too much emphasis was put in the wrong places. Mm. So off the back of that, what has the reaction been like to Boomtown? Uh, phenomenal. Um, it, it, it's just changed the, um, it's changed the dialogue. Um, you know, we will always need 
each of us who sell media for a living need to be consistent in, um, you know, uh, justifying our, our role, if mm. you like. And, um, you know, it's become a lot easier over the last couple of months to justify the regional markets being on the schedule in the first place. So what we're seeing now is an increase in briefs and uh, that's fantastic. We're seeing an increase in, in the weight of various advertisers. So the media weight that they would be prepared to put into regional media now, um, they're exploring putting in heavier weights. So that is, that is to say, not outweighing the amount of reach they might buy in a metro market, but e at least trying to equalise mm. the, the, the the media weight to, to equalise the reach, which is great news. And we're finding also that we're getting uh, a far warmer response um, to proactive discussions that we might want to have uh, both with agencies and with clients direct. And talk to me a little bit about, I imagine around that there had to be a bit of an education process. What did that look like? Yeah, it it, it moves along from the very, very simple mm. and important facts into individual uh, discussions about the potential impact on their business. So um, I'll give you some examples. So up front, the fact that 36 percent of the audience live in regional markets, pretty simple stat. The fact that national advertisers by and large invest 10% of their national advertising budget against those audiences is a simple and alarming stat. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, it's not the outcome for 100% of advertisers. Um, in fact, there are advertisers now, predominantly major retail, QSR, automotive, automotive dealers who spend quite large double-digit percentages of their total market budget in regional, they do that because they have a cash register on scene, as it were, and uh, they have franchisees on scene in the marketplace. And if they don't invest, the sales don't come, and they, they see that immediately in their sales outcomes. For a lot of the FMCGs and other companies, and particularly insurance and finance, which is actually a massive irony to me that insurance and finance aren't looking closely at their own internal data to assess, you know, you know who, who's who's buying and who's not buying. Um, w with those clients, there can be as little as 4% or zero invested mm -hmm. in regional markets. So we know who they are and we're having a very targeted conversation. So at the top level, as we go in with our trade marketing campaign, it's these simple stats, but meaningful stats. So 36 should not equal 10. And we're also drawing attention to the fact that the disposable incomes that the consumers in regional markets have are very much aligned to the disposable incomes that Metro uh, viewers, listeners, populations have. Um, so there's no you know, the, the major difference is that the, the economic cost of living your life in regional markets is less. And so what you've got to spend um, on maybe discretionary items or turning over to a new car or upgrading your home, redecorating, putting in a new pool, whatever that might be, they've got the money for that. And so um, they're also... Um, when given brand preference, they like to, to go with the brands they like and trust. Who who would have thought? <laughs> um, and, and, and it's not like it's uh, black and gold, own label uh, predominantly happening. Uh, that's not what's walking out of the supermarket. They want, they want, you know, choice and they like to be informed. 
So uh, there's really absolutely no difference between the metro and regional consumer. There's just a difference in the way that they've been addressed by the advertiser base. So, yeah, so when we're talking overall in the trade marketing, we're talking about these basic stats around disposable income, income, uh, you know, market size, and just trying to size the market opportunity for clients just in the trade marketing sense. When we get the privilege of sitting in front of a client, the data gets a lot more detailed and we're able to take a client and through the data that the various regional media companies subscribe to, we're able to say, uh, look, did you know that you're spending $136 per consumer in metro markets to get the market share that you're getting, but you're spending $6 in regional markets? And your market share is a fraction of what it is in your metro market. Mm. And do you think that could be a reason why there's an imbalance in 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 in, in your um in your ROI? Um, there's one particular client I won't go into their their name, but when we originally um, spoke to them some two or three years ago, um, regional revenues coming into their business as a proportion of their total national revenue is about fifteen percent. Now they've been working diligently to address their brand image in regional markets and regional markets are now 25% of their total turnover. Um, and they're getting the outcome because they're making their mark mm-hmm. in, with their marketing dollars in the, in the regional markets. So look, if, if, if clients see these, the, these bits of information and they make sense of it with us, um, there's every chance that we can do things in the market that they don't normally see, which is a massive increase in, in turnover, which is a great thing. Mm, definitely. So what are the plans for kind of for the next stages of Boomtown? So Ad Week's coming up mm. and uh, Boomtown is launching a phenomenal opportunity at Ad Week for one client to win a million dollar regional marketing campaign. Now that's going to be an opportunity uh, for all advertisers to pitch to mm. Boomtown um, to have the right to take advantage of that offer on the basis that they allow us to trade market the outcome because mm. we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak. We know that there are some brands out there that would really be able to benefit and um, we're offering the opportunity for those brands to pitch to us and we're going to pick the one that we think we can get the greatest return on and we're going to have as an industry a red hot crack at turning that brand around in regional markets. What are you hoping the outcome of that will be? Well, I anticipate the outcome will be that um, we will showcase how a brand who is underinvested in regional, um, when addressing that underinvestment, gets uh, a great ROI, a great return on on investing in in regional when they do put uh, you know money into the marketplace. Mm. So it's kind of interesting to me. We're having a lot of conversation here about regional media, and a lot of the conversation I've had recently about regional media has been very. Uh, people kind of being very alarmist about it perhaps and talking about, you know, the lack of media there, maybe media dropping out. But then there's also, um, we recently saw Anthony Catalano investing in ACM and people have said that he's done that because he thinks there's a really big opportunity there. Oh, smart money. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, um, I really do think that having fresh eyes on that portfolio, um, leads to nowhere but up. I mean, he has specific expertise across a range of, um, you know, mediums that I think are going to add a lot of value to regional communities. Um, those uh, mastheads that he's bought are incredibly important to those regional communities. Local news, local views, local opinion um, in the long form um, 
incredibly important. Um, you know, this is why, you know, for our radio business, uh, local news and local community engagement are uh, absolutely paramount and it's the strength of regional radio. Um, local news, extremely important uh, for SCA on our Nine affiliation and we've worked very, very closely with Nine to make sure that we've got the right quality of TV news going in local areas right across regional Australia and it's it's absolutely critically important. Um the comments that you're referring to have probably got more to do with one of the regional affiliates dropping five out of 16 bulletins um, for purely economic reasons. And, um, you know, I'm not sitting on their P&L, so I can't, I can't really comment about the, the particulars on that one. Um, it's a shame. I'm sure it's not what they would have preferred to do. Mm. But, um, again, you know, they're trying to uh, cut the cloth to suit the available market. And, um, you know, TV as a platform um, at the moment, the last, um, well, probably I think since September, since market conditions have been, you know, quite ugly um, temporarily, um, I, I guess they, they, they went as long as they could and uh, had to make a decision. Mm. And let's talk just briefly about digital as well because you referenced there the importance of reaching regional communities and digital radio is kind of allowing um, a lot more of tailored a tailored approach to certain mm. kind of niche audiences that maybe weren't being addressed before. Um, what are your thoughts on where that's going to go? Well, I'm very keen, as we are as a company, very keen on expanding our footprint in DAB and um, it's uh, launching in Hobart and mm. other markets uh, rolling out. Um, I think that's an exciting opportunity for regional because I think, you know, everybody deserves the opportunity to uh, be able to, you know, have an improved selection of curated content. I think it's interesting if you think about radio going back 30 years, um, you know, of all listening, um, radio was, I'm going to say, somewhere between 65 and 70%. The rest of it was owned music um, and, you know, your Sony Walkman and your LPs mm. and your CD players and so forth. It's that section of the market that's completely turned on its head in the course of the last 30 years. And now 65% of the people are still listening to FM and DAB and uh, and through our apps and through online listening, uh, but are listening to FM and DAB and AM services. And um, and so it feels to me, and our audiences have been growing, not getting smaller mm. because of this diversity in platform. Um, so you can pick up our, our stations wherever you are through an app, which is, is cool. Um, but you've got this, um, uh, you know, um, curation of various different styles of music currently in the metro markets and that's holding people with the product and um and we are we see nothing but upside with that and um i think plans that we have internally to be able to harness uh, the power of that curated music product even more than we are now um utilize, utilizing digital technologies and apps i think are very exciting and we see a future where obviously um, at some point in the next few years, the percentage of people listening to radio products or curated uh, audio products, um, similar to the ones that we're obviously, obviously uh, distributing now, it'll cross over from being, if you like, the old analog world of FM and AM into more people listening via digital um, mm. access to those products. So I think 
what we are doing as an industry is moving uh, quite quickly with the times and putting um, our products in the hands of consumers as they mobilise. Um, so they can get whatever we have in a mobile de device. And I think the next iteration of that for us is just more choice uh, and more flexibility about the way they curate their um, uh, over-the-air, traditionally over-the-air listening. Mm. And talk to me a little bit about the commercial side of it as well, because um, we kind of talked about this recently at Mumbrella's um, Audio Land Conference, which you were obviously in attendance at. Um, and there was a discussion about it needing, there still needing to be some education there done to agencies, particularly about the power of digital and how, like you were talking about earlier, that kind of selling across audiences instead of selling across a platform. Yeah, I'm not, I look at that. Agency education, I don't think, is probably the biggest issue. Mm. Um, I mean, all sectors of all areas of commerce need constant and, you know, constant re-education. I think we're all in that boat. Um, I think what the audio industry has to do is improve, um, you know, buyers' access to the product. I think that's the key. Um, and I think a really interesting and what we often refer to or we, in recent times is a golden age of audio is upon us. And to put context about what, around what that means, um, we um, should, with some improved audience measurement and some improvements in the tech stack, be able to array our products in such a way that all of the promise of the digital buying world, um, instant access and um, accountability and ROI, should theoretically be available to our buyers, you know, from our audio products. So you can buy our linear broadcast products, our, our, our digitally delivered linear audio products and our on-demand audio products um, seamlessly. And that's where we're heading in the next few years. And I think that's a really exciting place because it's going to make it a lot easier for the buyers to create a tech you know, an audio tech stack, if you like, around us or an audio stack around our products. Mm. Right now, you've got radio being bought by the radio sales, by the radio teams. You've got um, digital radio being bought in the, in the, in the on-demand sense by the digital teams. And our vision is that ultimately that will be seamless and um, you can buy um, our entire reach portfolio um, through one window, which I think is a really exciting proposition. Um, Right now, we are starting to um, appear more frequently and at greater weight in the programmatic space within stream audio. Um, most of the buyers that are, well, the buyers that are embracing that product are loving it. Uh, it's, um, you know, they're getting to a point um, with in stream where the only scaled um, uh, provider of impressions is 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 Spotify. Um, and so you get to a point there where your reach curve starts to flatten out pretty quickly. So by adding in an in-stream product and then by also acquiring the um, exclusive rights here to SoundCloud, mm. we've been able to dramatically and rapidly uh, increase the uh, the total reach of, uh, of the audio stack in the in-stream space. So buyers are now able to actually get some real reach with online audio advertising, which I think is a, a really uh, critical turning point. Um, more and more money will be going through um, that programmatic audio space over the course of this year. Mm, interesting. It's an interesting space. There's a lot happening oh. and it's moving very quickly. Yeah, it's a bit of a head spinner. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so I just wanted to pivot slightly. Um, we had the Mumbrella Awards recently in June and the SCA National Radio Sales Team actually won Best Sales Team. Ooh, did they? <laughs> I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. What do you think it was that made them stand out? Well, consistency and um, and a real attitude around who wins in every transaction. Um, you know, we're obsessed with clients wanting to come back and do business with us again. You know, and it and it and it permeates the organisation. I mean, we have great people, um, and we. I think we just we've put in place systems, processes, tools, resources, and and I think this came through in the pitch to the judges um, that that are really focused on making the connection between the brand challenge and communication, uh, and how our assets, as varied as they are, um, can come together seamlessly, turnkey to allow a client to achieve the outcome that they want. Now, you know, a lot of big words in there. Um, but, you know, in short, if it's not working for the brand, uh, we're never going to win a, an award like that. Mm. Because to me, um, it's about it's about consistency and delivery. It's about the right idea as often as possible. Uh, and it's about care and diligence in the delivery, which I think is um, is critically important. What do you think it is that brands are after when they're coming to buy radio advertising at the moment? Yeah, I think that's changing. I think it was always previously, um, you know, let's do something tactical that's going to get people running through the store today. Mm -hmm. Well, we tick that box. I mean, that just happens. Um, Let's do something that's cheaper than television. (laughs) Well, tick that box. That's that's kind of ongoing. Um, But we've also got... um, you know, branding now, um, demonstrating that, that brand lives at the core of what we do and we can really, you know, radios and, and audio more generally is theatre of the mind. So you've got a real opportunity in the audio space to seed into place with a consumer, um, you know, uh, a thought about why that brand is important to them and, in, and to their world, which is, you know, as we move into more in-stream products, the targeting component becomes even more important. Yeah, we can activate a promotion, but we can also sow the seed of future brand purchase through uh, at, at the higher end of the funnel. We're very, very committed to um, the movement of audio into the branding space. Um, that's why we launched a product um, in conjunction with Veritonic earlier this year called Brand Sound. Mm. Um, and I think the stat we quote is about 17%, you know, less than one in five uh, advertisers actually have an audio branding strategy. Um, which leaves a very large chunk of advertisers um, probably viewing radio as a tactical medium. Mm. So with the advent of smart speakers and other methods of, so, you know, voice-activated search, Mm. and uh, that's going to be a massive area, and it already is a massive area. So if a brand is not really focusing some attention on playing in the brand space in the audio sense, um, they may not get the recognition that they want, but if they are playing to the consumer and trying to create a, a brand imagery and sound that really um, engages with the consumers in the right way, um, what we're going to find is that our brand awareness curves are going to improve and our ability to have a nice uh, halo effect in relation to you might do your tactical campaign but do it creatively right, um, you're going to test those people and find brand awareness is high and growing. Mm-hmm. And so brand sound is a is a really critical part of um, our efforts to, um, I guess, 
demonstrate to brand management that they really need to take stock of where they sit in the audio space because things like uh, DAB and uh, in-stream advertising and targeted digital ads and, um, you know, smart speakers in the home and um, voice-activated search just puts them in a scary new world. And uh, people need to recognise who you are at the first beat mm. of your brand sound. So that's 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 a big one for us. And I think it's going to move the needle a little bit around um, just tactical to being a branding platform. Mm, interesting. There's so recently we had um, all the journalism raids, um, the AFP. Um, and what was interesting is that after that, um, Michael Miller, David Anderson and Hugh Marks got together and did Press Club. Um, and there was all this reporting, including myself, um, which said an, a rare united front from the print media bosses. In radio, there seems to be less of that rivalry. There seems to be, whether or not behind the scenes you are all pulling each other's hair, it seems like you're all very happy to present a united front. You all very often get behind things. You kind of move as an industry. Why do you think that is? Look, I think we've got a very cohesive industry body. Um, you know, uh, it genuinely takes all constituents' opinions into account. It's got... Uh, quite a large number of working committees um, around things like measurement and automation and so forth. Um, these committees have a broad scope um, of discovery. So, you know, we're constantly as an industry um, looking, searching, trying to sort of get beyond the horizon. Um, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, potentially DAB in this market is probably more successful than anywhere else. Um, you know, there's a everyone has their own nuance, though, on the way that mm. they want to operate. I mean, our digital strategy or DAB strategy is completely different to um, Nova or ARNs or, or, or Macquarie's. I mean, they're not comparable, but mm. everybody's making their play. So I think you've got an industry body that's um, able to uh, create a playing field for the industry and you know, um, I guess um, create a context for us as an industry, uh, a playing field, and it's up to us who wins the game. Um, it's like uh, commercial forces always take control. So we're going to wrap up soon, um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. Um, the, over the last week or so, 2GB, um, you just mentioned Macquarie in there, 2GB have had some talent changes there's been a lot of noise around it. Of course, it brings to mind one of the most famous talent changes in recent FM history, which is Kyle and Jackie O. Um, do you think there is a way that talent changes can be handled that doesn't generate this kind of noise? I don't understand how your greatest asset, which is your talent, uh, could not possibly create noise. Mm. I mean, you're in. We're in. We're in that game of, of, of working with really high-caliber, nationally known, high-end talent. And, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, they generate their own publicity. So, yeah, um, no, I don't, I don't think there's any way that those sort of things can take place without uh, many opinions being shared in many formats continuously throughout the entire <laughs> journey. <laughs> and do you think the only way for companies to manage that is just to ride the wave? I I don't think there's any way of gaming that. Mm. 
Mm. Um, you, I think the only thing that you can strive for consistently is to have a great working relationship with all of the people that are in your business. Uh, and that includes talent, that includes operations and production and sales. So I, I think, um, people have got to get along and, um, you know, and I, I think it's one of the things we take great pride in is 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 getting along and um, creating an opportunity for everybody to win and to enjoy their time. And um, you know, there is, a, I guess, and to be fair to to Macquarie, I mean, you know, that 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 business is going through, um, you know, the Fairfax Nine uh, engagement. There is all sorts of opinions and views around what happens next, and. You know, I often say opinions are like bums, you know, <laughs> everybody's got one. And when it comes to um, a merger like that and what might happen next with talent and who's going to own it and all the rest of it, how you'd avoid a, you know, wave of publicity around that, I, you know, I wouldn't know. But contract negotiations with talent across all the radio networks happen on a daily basis uh, concurrently all the time. So, um, and they very rarely make those kind of headlines. Mm. And just lastly, before we go, I'm going to put you on the spot. Before we started, you said you weren't going to address radio ratings, but I'm going to make you do it. Um, Where are you hoping that Triple M and Hit will be by the end of the year? (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice, easy one for you. (laughs) Oh, God. uh, um, Well, (laughs) where do I hope? Well, God, you know, I mean... I'm not in the content department. I mean, I I deal professionally with what happens tomorrow or Mm. the next day whenever the ratings come out. Um, And and to be honest, um, I'm probably the last person in the business who actually goes through them with a fine-tooth comb. you know, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not a, I try not to be a victim of whatever happens with the ratings, good or bad. And I try not to be a victim of what's happening in the market with the revenues either. I mean, if it's a bad market, I figure out how we get out of it. Mm. Um, I, I, I expect and, uh, I anticipate that we're going to have increased growth across the year. Um, but you know, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm going to leave that up to um, Gemma and Fitzy in the main to to, to sort that out, and uh, whatever happens on Survey Day, um, I, I'll figure it out eventually and deal with it and work with it. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't spend a hell of a lot of time thinking about about that issue um, because look, with us, um, there's a real consistency about our business. Um, we don't have massive ebbs and flows and ups and downs. We, we've got a really consistent programming strategy. It um, It's not singly and wholly dependent on one team here, there or somewhere else to, to get us our number. Um, I think um, I think what's happening in Sydney with Triple M uh, is going to yield more audience. And I love the show in Sydney on hit. So I can't imagine that it isn't going to deliver more audience. So our drive position is solid. Um, we've been very consistent there. So all the bits and pieces that come together to form a survey outcome <laughs> are kind of there. I think we're heading north in, in Sydney where it counts. Um, I think it's just incremental survey by survey. And um, it's not going to break me one way or the other, Hannah. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Bev.